Thank you, Hildy. Um, <clears throat> we are, again, continuing our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we are still in chapter 5, uh, but we're coming to the close of chapter 5 here, and we've been saying all, in, all along that, that the Sermon on the Mount is a portrait of a kingdom citizen, a, a member of the kingdom of heaven. When, when heaven is implanted in a person's heart, they are going to become a certain kind of person. And the Sermon on the Mount is meant to explain to us, to show us, to give us a picture of what that person looks like. And we've been seeing how uh, the change is one that, that radically shapes our relationships. So when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ... Um, your relationship with God has changed. Your relationship to yourself has changed. Your relationship to other people has changed. Everything is different. And therefore, when you read the commands of the Sermon on the Mount, you actually cannot pick and choose those commands that you like and that you want to follow and, and those that you don't groove to too much and, and frankly are not all that interested in. Today, people love to talk about turning the other cheek, the importance of being peace-loving and caring and kind and gentle toward people, including your adversaries. But when you talk about sexual morality and the importance of sexual purity, people get their backs up, even in the church. But you can't pick and choose those commands that you want to follow in the Sermon on the Mount because it's all meant to be that portrait of a kingdom citizen. In, in verse 47, Jesus says, he says, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. He's saying, sure, you can love like the world loves, but so what? I expect more from the citizens of my kingdom. If, if you're good to people who are good to you, big whoop. Even the pagans can do that. Even the worst of people can do that. We're going to see that in a minute. I'm calling you, Jesus says, to live differently, okay? I'm calling you to live according to an ethic that is beyond anything this world has. And we... When we read the Sermon on the Mount, are convicted, I would hope, and say, man, I don't live like that. But I hope that we're also inspired. That we say, man, this is the kind of person I want to be. This is the kind of person I aspire to be. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's, it's virtually impossible. Certainly by my own power, I will never be able to pull this off. But when verse 48 says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, I don't read that and say to myself, ah, come on, that's unreasonable, Jesus, you're a little over the top, I don't have to worry about that. You read it and you say, oh man, what if I was like that? Oh, how I long to be like that. To be as holy, to be as sanctified as a sinner could ever possibly be, to resemble my Father. That's why Jesus says, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you become a Christian, we said this at, at, uh, at Riley's baptism, you become a member of Christ's family. You become adopted by God. You become his kid. He's your father. You're his son or you're his daughter. And, and you know what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to resemble your family. You know, you got, there's, there's, just, there's families out there where you look at one kid or all the kids, they all look exactly like each other and they all look exactly like one or, or some composite of, of the parents. We say that they're the spitting image, so to speak, of, of the parents. That's what you want to be. 
You want to be the spitting image of your heavenly father. And maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I don't look like my heavenly father much uh, right now at all. But, well, Riley doesn't look like Jessica or Greg much right now. I know the grandmas especially are like, oh, for sure, she does. She's got that nose and those ears and blah, blah, blah. We've been over this before. It's not true. Little babies don't look like anybody. They look like little babies. And they will eventually look like somebody, yes. And in the same way, if you don't look much like your heavenly father, but you do love him, you will continue to grow into the image of him. That's what verse 48 is talking about. Now, we're going to look at this section here entitled Love for Enemies, verses 34, uh, sorry, 43 through 48, as a summary This is kind of a summary of what Jesus has been talking about basically throughout chapter 5, especially beginning at verse uh, 21. And Jesus is teaching us about real love, about divine love. And we're going to see here four things. We're going to see what he's calling us to be and do, what that looks like, what the motive is for it, and what's the standard that we should look to to understand if we're actually achieving it or not. Okay, those four, three, four things. First of all, what is Jesus calling us to? This is verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is calling us to a higher, deeper form of love that would normally be considered reasonable. Jesus says, you heard that it was said. Again, he's talking about the rabbis. And he's saying, the rabbis have told you that you're supposed to love your neighbor because, yes, the, the Old Testament says that. But the rabbis have also told you that you should hate your enemies. Now, the Old Testament does not say that you should hate your enemy. That's something the rabbis kind of came up with. When they're trying to understand what the Jewish relationship to other nations should be, they came to the conclusion that they're supposed to love their enemies and perhaps they're supposed to hate, or sorry, love their neighbors and perhaps they're supposed to hate their enemies. Now, where in the world do they get this idea from? Well, part of it comes, well, it comes partly from the Old Testament itself. Because there are parts of the Old Testament, and you probably have come across them in your own reading occasionally, that you read, you read and you go, well, wait a minute, maybe we are supposed to hate our enemies. One good example of that is actually Psalm 139. Famous psalm. People love this psalm because it talks about being knit together in our mother's womb and and God, wherever we go, God knows us and he's with us and all that kind of stuff. And then it also says something really weird. (laughs) At one point it says in verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. And you read something like that. And you think to yourself, whoa, that's pretty heavy. I'm supposed to hate those who hate God? Am I supposed to hate those rebels? And the answer to that is no. The rabbis were saying you were. But that was a misunderstanding. Because David, in his capacity as king, is speaking on behalf of God's people in kind of an official capacity. And he is crying out to God to bring about his vindication, his righteousness, his justice on a world that is failing to uphold his law. And he's saying, God, one day you are going to vindicate your righteousness. You're going to make everything right. And I'm calling on you to do that starting now. 
This isn't a personal vendetta that David is thinking of. He's not thinking of someone individual like someone in his bridge club. He's like, I hate that guy, man. God, will you just smite him? No, no, no. So that's one reason the rabbis thought so. But the other reason is because, frankly, isn't it kind of common sense? (laughs) If you think about it, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Like, why... Why would you be expected to love your enemies? Is that reasonable? Is that even, is that even healthy? <laughs> like, psychologically. Love your enemies. Love people who injure you. People who have abused you. People who have sought to destroy you. People who have, who have tried to take you down, who are actively opposed to you. Maybe that's a good way of describing an enemy. Someone who is actively opposed to you. Should we actually love people like that? Should we actually care about people like that? Should we actually try to to accomplish what is best for people like that? Maybe some of you have heard of Stockholm Syndrome, you know, where in very rare cases, uh, a hostage actually starts to identify with their their, uh, kidnapper or or the victim of a crime uh, starts to identify with the abuser, we'd say that that's like a psychologically bad thing. And here is Jesus saying, love your enemies. And by the way, Jesus is saying this in a culture, in a world that is drenched in violence and oppression. Remember we talked about the Romans last week, about how the Romans could make you carry anything for, for a mile because they were in control. They were in absolute control of your land. They were brutal overlords, oppressors. And Jesus is saying to Jews, love your enemies. They're thinking immediately of these Romans. Why would Jesus say that? Well, here's the lesson, friends. Jesus is saying that the command to love your neighbor includes your enemy. Let me ask you a question. Who is your neighbor? Now, I don't, I don't know how country folk answer this, this question. I can answer this question. My neighbor lives, like, right next door to me. But, you know, country folk, sometimes it's like two kilometers before the the next house. Is that your neighbor, the house next door, two kilometers down the road? Is, is, is it your family? Is it your, your buddies? Is it the people that you're kind of in proximity? Is it your church people that you know or, or your colleagues at work? According to the Bible, your neighbor is the person in front of you right now. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, the person in front of you Right then and there, that's the person who is your neighbor. And therefore, Jesus is saying that that to love your neighbor means to love all people, whoever's in front of you, even if it's your enemy. That includes your enemy. That's your neighbor. Let me put it this way. Jesus is saying that if you don't love your enemy, you're not fulfilling the command to love your neighbor. The rabbis were saying, yes, we got to love our neighbor. That means we got to love the Jews. we got to love our people. we got to stick together. You know, world's a tough place. we got our folks. And if we band together, we can face all, uh, all opposition together. And those are our people. But we make a very clear distinction between who our people are and who the bad people are, who the good people are, who the bad people are, who the in people are, who the out people are. We make a very clear distinction. And we know that we should care for those who are on the ins and of of course we should hate and oppose those who are on the outs. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. 
in my kingdom, you are called to love everybody, including those who actually oppose you actively. And notice that this is a command. Jesus says this isn't optional. It's not like I'm saying, hey, this is a good idea. It's a good way to get along in the world. Jesus is saying this is what you must do. And that gives us a hint into what he means by love your enemy. Because you see, a lot of people today, we would say, you can't command love, right? Like, like how many guys would be... No, actually, I'm not going to say that. You're not all that shallow. But let me put it this way. How many guys have a girl in their life that they want them to go out with them, but the girl won't? Wouldn't it be sweet if you could command them to? You must love me. I'm sorry, but God said, you must love me. You are commanded to. Therefore, we should go out. We don't think of love that way. We think of love as something that you fall into, right? We, we talk about Cupid's arrow. You're walking along, and he goes, bing! next thing you know, whoa, that person is really interesting to me. I have so much affection for them. That's how we understand love. We understand it as kind of an emotional response to some kind of pleasing stimuli in another person. I know, that didn't sound romantic. But that's essentially how we understand love. We fall in love. It's a random thing. But in the Bible, love is not so much a matter of devotion as it is a matter of decision. It's not something you feel at first. It's not at first an affection, it's a commitment, it's a decision of the will to bring goodness, to bring blessing to another person, no matter how you feel about it in the moment. And you know how we know that? Think of the cross, friends. Do you think Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's been stripped bare, He's been beaten to a pulp within an inch of his life. People are coming by. And by the way, when you're hanging on a cross in ancient times, you're not like way up there, okay? (laughs) The crosses weren't like that. They're a few feet off the ground. You're, You're maybe, I don't know, a couple feet off the ground, five feet off the ground, and people come up and they can spit at you, man. They can hit you, hock a loogie at you. They can hit you if they want. And there's Jesus hanging on a cross, and he's got these people mocking at him, spitting at him, making fun of him, saying, hey, uh, he saved others, let's see him save himself. Why don't you call down Elijah? Can't your angels come and get you? (laughs) You think Jesus is hanging there going, I am feeling so much affection for these people right now. I'm just so drawn to them emotionally. Jesus was committed He didn't just say, I feel the love, okay? I I remember, I remember when in my last church we hosted some refugees. We helped bring some Karen refugees over. I didn't know anything about the Karen people. I didn't know anything about Myanmar, about Burma. I didn't know anything about the history there. I got to know these people, and they were just the sweetest, gentlest people living in their little village in parts of the jungle of Myanmar farming their plots of land, raising their kids, loving them, teaching them to follow Jesus. And, and the military came in and they raped their women and they burned their houses down there and they had to literally just grab their family and flee into the jungle. And they flee through the jungle and finally they make their way to Thailand and they spend 10 years in a refugee camp. 10 years in a refugee camp with all the 
poor sanitation and, and poor amenities that you can think of. And, and, and they're Christians and they're reading passages like this. Love your enemies. Do you think that Jesus is telling them, have a, a sense of emotional affection for these people? No. He's talking about commitment, friends. What he's showing us here is, if you are a gospel person, okay, how you behave in this world is not dependent upon how you're treated by others. In verse 46, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? This is how people work today, okay? You do good towards those who do good to you. And Jesus says, so what? Honestly, you're patting yourself on your back because you're good to the people who are good to you? That is no big thing. The hell's angels are good to each other, okay? They're a brotherhood. They've got each other's backs. They look out for one another. And Jesus says, so what? So what if we're good to our people, we're good to our friends, we're good, and that's how we are, eh? And then we're, we're not good. We, we're the opposite as well. We're, we're not good to the people who are not good to us. Just think about what you're thinking about. Think, think about what you're thinking about when you get cut off in traffic. What are you thinking about that person who just cut you off? Or think about what you think about when that extremely annoying, difficult coworker somehow skirts their responsibility and when the task is not completed, it, looks, it makes you look bad instead of them. Think about, okay, some of you guys are on the, the, the TikTok, right? Think about how you feel when you come across a TikTok video where some person is slamming Christianity and making fun of Jesus and being sacrilegious or blasphemous, how do you feel about that person? What do you think about that person? In each of these cases, our emotional life is being controlled by other people. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 when you're in my kingdom, that's not you. You are ruled by me. You are ruled by Jesus. You are not ruled by others. So love your enemies. Seek the good of your enemies. Be concerned about what is best for your enemies. That's what it is. Be committed to their good. That's what it means to love. And we say, okay, how do we do that? Because that's a pretty tall order. And Jesus gives us a simple answer, actually. It's interesting that he says, pray for those who persecute you. It's a simple answer to the question. How do I love my enemies? Well, first and foremost, pray for them, not against them. Jesus doesn't say, pray against your enemies. (laughs) He says, pray for them. And as simple as it sounds, friends, this is an incredibly powerful tool. It is almost impossible to hate somebody you're praying for. Did you know that? When you're praying for someone, you're loving them. Jesus, while he's dying on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's praying for them. 
as they're killing him. Stephen does the same thing. He's taken out, to the, out uh, and, and thrown into a hole and people are pull, picking up rocks and they're starting to hurl them at him and, the, and they're trying to put it, put it through his skull so he's dead. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. Prayer is an expression of loving your enemy. Let me, let me tell you quickly, I got these from Sinclair Ferguson. There are five things that happen to you when you pray for your enemies. First of all, you re, you're released from your basic instinct of self-defense. You're released from your basic instinct of self-defense, meaning you're not worried about fighting back or protecting yourself or winning an argument. Number two, you turn from the subjective to the objective. We all, we all come at our circumstances and our, our experiences from our own perspective. It's a subjective perspective, and it's not always correct. Sometimes it's clouded by, by uh, experiences in the past. Sometimes it's clouded by the situation that's happening. Regardless, when you pray for someone, you are taking out the subjective. And you are speaking simply objectively. You are saying that this individual needs to encounter the living God. Yes, I hope they will stop persecuting me. But that's going to come as a result of their deepest need being met, that they would actually encounter the living God. And that's the third thing. You're focusing on their needs, not on yours. You're not worrying about yourself so much as you're worrying about them. And then fourthly, you're putting both of yourself and them under the sovereignty of God. You're saying, God, you are at work in this. Your hand is, is at work in this. I don't understand it, but nothing happens outside of your permission. And here I am being persecuted by this individual, by this enemy. And there is something that I am to learn. And there is something that they are to learn in the midst of this experience. And I trust your goodness and your sovereignty. And last thing is you actually experience what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of things about you for my sake. You actually get to experience what it is like to be blessed in the midst of those circumstances. Now, that's not all Jesus says about how you are to love your enemies. That's a summary that we get here in Matthew 5. But in Matthew 6, we get a little bit more uh, explanation. Jesus includes in his command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, do good to those who hate you. Be kind, be gentle, be tender. Continue to meet the physical and spiritual needs of, of those who are against you. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. This is what God does. God meets the needs of his enemies. God takes care of the people who hate him. Now listen, imagine if you're a parent, you have a child, you love them more than they will ever be able to understand. And you raise them, and you give them every opportunity. You provide for them with love and attention. You give them encouragement. You nurture them for years and years and years. They lack for nothing. And one day they come to you and they say, I'm done with you. I don't really want anything to do with you. I'm moving out. And don't ever try to contact me. 
They go down to their room and they start packing and you're heartbroken and you don't know what to do. And then they walk upstairs and they're on their way out and they say, oh, by the way, can I have some money? I just called an Uber. What do you say? Human beings, God's beloved creation, day in and day out, behave like that toward him. And what does he do? He keeps causing the sun to rise. He keeps causing the rain to fall. He keeps providing for their needs. That's what God is like, and that's what we're called to be like. Now, that means that at times, yes, we are gentle and loving and kind, but at times, to truly love someone is to offer a rebuke, to even be an offense, to call out an injustice, right? How we behave is dependent upon what we need to do to bring this other person to God. Because that's the ultimate goal. If to love your neighbor is to seek their good, seek what is best for them, then the thing that that is best for them above all other things is that they have a saving encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And so your greatest concern in addressing your enemies and dealing with your enemies and handling your enemies is not supposed to be, how do I protect myself? How do I get them to stop? How do I keep this from bugging me? How do I get back at them? No, it's how do I take what is happening to me right now and judo trick it into drawing that person toward Jesus, using that evil against itself. Now, The thing is, okay, so that's what we're supposed to do. Fair enough. Why would you ever want to? Why would you ever actually want to do that? What would be the motivation? And we said, the motivation is right there in verse uh, 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The motivation for loving people the way Jesus is is that that's how Jesus is. The motive for loving people the way God calls us to here is because that's how God does it himself. You are his child. Notice that it says, you may be children of your heavenly father. He's not saying that you become children of your heavenly father. It's that that by doing this, you are now like him and you're becoming a, a child of God. No, he's saying, look at him. Look at how he is good to the bad, how he is generous to his enemies, to the entire human race, how he has been kind to those who reject him. And he says, that's the motivation for you to be the same, because that's the gospel. God loving his enemies. Romans 5 verse 10 says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Now, please realize something. If you've been struggling to listen for a while, I get it. It's not always that enthralling, but you need to hear this one. You will not understand this motive if you don't come to grips with what Paul is saying here. You were, or maybe some of you right now are, enemies of God. And you say, like most people in your head, no, wait a minute, I'm not an enemy of God. That's some pretty extreme language. I'm just not interested in God. 
And maybe you're, you're a Christian, you love God, you believe in Jesus, you've put your trust in him, but when you think about your past, you never think to yourself, I'm, I'm, I was an enemy of God? I don't think about myself that way. I think of myself as someone who didn't really think about God at all. An enemy, we said before, an enemy is someone who actively opposes. I've never actively opposed God. No way. Eh? You sure about that? Simple question. You ever been mad at God because he didn't give you what you wanted? You ever look at your life and go, I didn't plan for this. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone to church, I've prayed, I've given money, I've given time, I've done all the things that I'm supposed to do, and my life is not turning out the way I expected, and I am ticked off. I play God, I played. I have to admit, I play ball with God when he cooperates, but when he doesn't, man, all I am is angry. That's being an enemy of God, because you see, it basically boils down to this, friends. Who's God? You or God? And when God doesn't come through the way that we expect him to come through in our lives, what we're telling him essentially is, I'm God, not you. And you're here to help me achieve my dreams, accomplish my goals, have the life I expected. And that means you're actively opposing him. You don't have to be raising a sword saying, I hate you. All you have to do is say, I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. I want to run my life. That's all you have to do to be an enemy of God. And listen, friends, a Christian is someone who says, the reason that I get mad about my life and I feel that everything is unfair is because I have been God's enemy. But I am done fighting over who's in charge with him. He's in charge. And so, even though I haven't been wielding my sword like a madman, I've been holding it, and now I'm laying it down. Look, on the cross is where you see that Jesus loved his enemies. And he prayed for those who were persecuting him. And when you see that that's what's happening on the cross, that Jesus is actively, committedly loving his enemies, where, where he hangs there as they la laughed at him and spit at him, and as they mocked him, and as they jeered him, and as he felt God's judgment for sin being weighed down upon him, and that at any moment, if he wanted to, he could have called a, a, a legion of angels to come smite all his enemies, take him off the cross, vindicate him before all his foes, so that he could say, ha, how do you like me now? And he said, no, I won't do that. Instead, he continued to drink from the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs because he said, I'm not finished paying for her sins, and I'm not done paying for his sins, and i got to keep going because i got to pay for that guy's sins, and I've taken that person in my heart as, as one I love deeply, and so I've got to pay for those sins. He hung there and hung there and hung there and hung there until finally he gasped, it's finished, and he hung his head and he died. He did that for you. 
And when that sinks into you, that he, he conquered you with his love. He conquered your hard heart with his love. Then you can look to your enemy and seek to conquer them the same way. That's the motive. Last thing, what's the standard? Well, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, <laughs> I thought Poe Buddy's nerfect. I know, that was lame. I thought nobody's perfect. This is unfair. Be perfect, come on. <laughs> be perfect. To err is human, right? To forgive is divine. Isn't that the relationship we're supposed to have? God's in the business of forgiving sin. I'm in the business of committing them. We get along fine this way. But don't you see, friends, that, that this vision of your perfection, that's Jesus' dream for you. That's his ambition for you. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says something astounding. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. You know, on a wedding day, that's like the one day, ladies, where you're flawless, eh? Like, because you got this awesome dress and somebody spent three hours on your hair and you finally put on makeup that fits your complexion properly because someone who knows what they're doing did it. And, and you walk into that church and your, your husband goes, whoa, I, like I always thought she was something, but she's something. And you know that this, I'm just, I can't pull this off again. <laughs> right? It's always fun when 10 years later you try to pull out your wedding dress and try to put it on again and you're like, oh boy. Got to go to the uh, seamstress or whatever it is. But that moment, you see, that picture, that's what Jesus is looking forward to when you and I, his church, his bride, when we will be presented to him on our great wedding day and we are flawless. Every part of you that you don't like because you know he doesn't like it will be gone. Every wrinkle will be removed. Not just the crow's feet, but the wrinkles on your soul. And you are going to be more beautiful, more handsome, guys, more whatever than we ever thought possible. And that's why we're getting ready now. We're getting ready. Let me close with a story I heard that I think is a great illustration of this. There was a, a very wealthy man who owned a business and his, his best friend died and his best friend had a young boy, left a son, and asked as he was dying that this wealthy man would take care of his son and help him and then he passed away and, and this man said, I will do that. And so he raised this boy and he put him through grad school and then he gave him a really good job in his company and Turns out that this young man was pretty irresponsible and uh, he fell into a drug addiction. And he needed money to feed that drug addiction and so he started embezzling money out of the company. And after a while, he realized like he could no longer cover this up. The auditors are going to come, they're going to find this out, that he embezzled company funds. And so, one night, he's poring over the books 
realizing that this is the end of it, and he decides he's going to take his own life. So he grabs a bottle, and he just starts drinking himself. Silly, because he wants to bring up the courage to take his own life. But what ends up happening is, is he passes out before he can attempt. And the old man shows up, sees him in his office lying there, and sees the books open, and he looks over the books, and he kind of figures out what's happening. And he leaves two notes. On the, the books, he leaves a note for the auditors, and it says, I will personally make up the difference out of my own funds. And the other note he leaves is for the boy, and it says, or the young man, if you're ready to get help, I'm ready to forgive and put everything behind us. And this young man, he finally awakens, and he sees the both, both both notes, and what he sees is, in the one note, this guy knows everything. Everything that he did, how big the debt is, he knows it all because the books are open, but in the other note, what does he see? That this man is love personified. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came into this world and he saw our hearts. He looked at the heart of his enemy and he saw nameless things inside our hearts that you and I, we don't even want to admit exist there. And he died for you. Anyway, let that melt you. Let that move you because to the degree that it does, you will be like him. And like your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no ethic in the world that says, love your enemies as you love your neighbor. That your enemy is your neighbor. No ethic in the world but the one Jesus offers and calls us to. We know our weakness, Lord. We know we cannot love that way unless you move in us. Do move in us, we plead. And if anyone here this morning is your enemy, conquer them right now with your love. May they see that you know them to the bottom, but you love them to the skies. And that you are ready to forgive. You stand ready they would just admit their sin and give themselves to you. Let this be the day of their salvation, we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.